0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Calling for a ceasefire. I mean, this is very interesting to get together and to have this unified point to get across. I think that's something really to note.
1: David Cameron, as the Foreign Secretary, is incredibly interesting. He went to Israel when he was PM. He presented himself as a supporter, but at the same time, he referred to Gaza as being an open prison camp.
2: We eat when we can, just because you need to keep going and keep moving forward. You go to sleep knowing that the day after will look as bleak as the day before, but we live in hope.
3: I'm David Knowles, and this is Battle Lines. The
2: Terrorist
1: group Hamas unleashed pure, unadulterated evil in the world. But sadly, the Jewish people know perhaps better than anyone that there is no limit to the depravity of people when they want to inflict pain on
0: others. Like every place I go, I go to run away and I just find bombs and I find dead people. And like maybe one day I'll end up like them, but it's a really scary thing for me. <laughs>
3: People telling me that, you know, mostly this is about Hamas, but they're also angry with absolutely everybody.
4: I'm begging the world to bring my baby back
3: home. In this episode of Battle Lines, I speak to senior foreign correspondent Sophia Yam, Telegraph Global Health reporter Lilia Sebway, foreign reporter Verity Bowman, and defence editor Danielle Sheridan. Sophia explains some of the diplomatic moves made by Middle Eastern and Asian states close to the conflict. Lilia updates us on the conditions in Gaza's hospitals. Verity talks us through the Israeli assault on the Al-Shifa hospital. And Danny explains how the war in Israel and Gaza impacted British society on Armistice Day. A warning this week that the episode contains graphic language that some listeners might find distressing. Sophia started us off by talking through some of the diplomatic developments of the last week. It's Friday, the 16th of November.
0: So in the weekend that just passed, there was an emergency meeting in Riyadh, convened by Saudi Arabia, by the government there, a, a bunch of Arab nations in the region getting together, getting to the same place. And what they called for was ceasefire. They were asking for an end, an immediate end to military operations in Gaza rejecting what Israel has said of its military operations, which is that it's in self-defense. Now, this was really extraordinary in the sense that, okay, you can write this off as general basic pro-Palestinian support by regional countries. There's some element of that, but we're talking Iran, Turkey, Qatar, Syria. These are countries that have really not always seen eye to eye. It's all about power dynamics, competing for more political or religious influence aiming to be the leading voice in the region. I mean, this is something that is very complicated. There are nations that perhaps broadly sit on the same side together, but when you really get down to it, there are often a lot of disagreements and points of contention. So it's really interesting and and, uh, not common at all for them to be able to gather like this and really to have a united message to send to the world. And so I think this was really something to take note of. Also on top of all of this, this was the Iranian president, Ibrahim Raisi's first trip to Saudi Arabia after the two countries resumed diplomatic ties earlier this year. So without all this other news, that itself would have been already a landmark visit. So it's even more, more compelling that this is all happening at the same time. And, and I think what it really shows is that there are more and more countries in the Middle East, they're becoming more clear in their message. They don't want this to escalate. This is a part of the world with a lot of traumatic memories of war. These countries, they don't want the US military to get more involved either. There's economic concerns here, and a lot of these countries dealing with their domestic economic growth, uh, what that means for their own populations, their citizens. But at the same time, a lot of these countries, like Iran, they've painted this image of themselves as very much anti-US. So they also can't let up on the rhetoric, and they also can't be seen to not back Hamas. So it's a very tricky balancing act. And, And over these last few weeks, you're starting to see more nuance in how they're sending this message forward. And so, again, this calling for a ceasefire, I mean, this is very, very interesting, I think, at this point. It's something that these nations have said individually already, but to get together and to have this unified point to get across, I think that's something really uh, to note.
3: Sophia, that's fascinating. Do you detect any change in policy then, or or at least how are they going to implement this this collective will of, the, of all the different Arab states?
0: Mm, implementing it is a big question. It depends on... If Israel wants to listen, and right now Israel, Netanyahu, he definitely does not seem like he will take direction from anyone, not even the U.S., because the U.S. too has started to become a little bit more clear on where it stands. It's more than a month in now, since October 7th, and there's a chance that the world begins to lose their patience. It does seem like that patience internationally is starting to wear thin with regard to further military action. By Israel, We've all seen at this point some really horrific and sad images of what's happening in Gaza. So how much longer can the Israeli military do this? They say it's for self-defense. There's certainly some element of that that is in their right to do, but it has gone on for quite some time. There's been a lot of bloodshed and there has to be some thinking about a resolution, a way out and what happens next for the region.
3: Sophia, there's also been a wave of anti-Western boycotts sweeping the Arab world. What can you tell us about this?
0: Some of the most iconic brands out of the US, also Europe, we're talking McDonald's, Starbucks, Coca-Cola, Domino's, even French supermarket chain Carrefour, shoe brand from Germany, Puma. I mean, these are all brands that are being hit by boycotts across the Middle East. And these companies, they have not taken a public political stance This is not something that a lot of these companies really do. They are public companies. There are regulations for them to be reporting certain financial information, how much profit they've made, where they're spending it, and why. So things like audits, company boards, shareholders are all there to hold these companies accountable for what they're doing. But basically, these farms are being targeted for what the U.S. government is doing, which is supporting Israel. Uh, So these are actions that people oppose, that people in the Middle East who are pro-Palestinian really are are against. And so all these Western brands are getting wrapped up in this broader conflict. It has meant that there has been a a push for consumers because they're boycotting these bigger chains, these bigger Western chains, that there's a move toward local brands. There's a a really fun story about this local Egyptian soda maker. Apparently, they've seen their sales go up by 300% because nobody wants to buy Coca-Cola. So there's some benefit to that for the region. But this is something that you're seeing as the, the wider fallout of what's happening with Israel and in Gaza.
3: Sophia Yan, Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, is in America at the moment meeting Joe Biden. What can you tell us about this meeting and what might it mean for the conflict in Israel and Gaza?
0: Xi and Biden meeting in the US is perhaps a positive sign for bilateral relations between Beijing and Washington. That's a whole other can of worms to unpack. But what applies to what's happening now with Israel-Palestine is that China does have a relationship with Iran. China could try to get more involved in figuring out what happens next by working those ties with Iran. But China, when it comes to these big diplomatic gestures, they're very risk-averse. They talk a much bigger game than they actually implement and apply. Beijing is probably not going to want to do very much at this point because who knows what could happen next. It's messy for China. They don't have a lot of experience in the region. And certainly with a conflict at this scale, this to them is just a really uncharted territory. This is similar to what happened with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. China also has close ties to Russia, to Russian President Vladimir Putin. We've talked a lot about this in past podcast episodes. And again, Beijing has not really wanted to stick its neck out too much. It's just too much of a gamble to do so. So this, from a very big picture level, is interesting in the sense that you see, again, this divide between the U.S. and China sitting on two different sides of the table. And China having perhaps some leverage... To help come to a resolution in two major conflicts in the world, but not giving the sense that they really want to do that.
3: Thanks, Sophia. Last week, global health reporter Lilia Sebwai spoke to us about the dire conditions in Gaza's hospitals. It was a moving and terrifying report. This week, I asked her again to bring us up to date on the situation for healthcare in Gaza. Here's our conversation. Lilia, last week we spoke about the situation in hospitals in Gaza. Um, you've spent the last week catching up with doctors and medical professionals working in these hospitals. A week on, what more can you tell us? How has the situation changed?
2: So the situation's massively escalated from last week. The healthcare system's basically completely collapsed. The World Health Organization has said that half the hospitals in Gaza, 22 out of 36, are now non-functional, and the 14 remaining hospitals barely have enough supplies to even provide minimum care to patients. They don't have painkillers. We talked about doing C-sections last week with no anaesthetic. One doctor said that he's been forced to do excruciatingly painful wound changes without any painkillers. Limbs are being amputated, major life-saving surgeries. And in the major burns unit in hospitals, you need to scrub patients down with antiseptic or their wounds become infected and this can be fatal. But doctors have been forced to resort to using a bar of soap to clean people down. They're also working to the background of constant explosions, particularly in northern Gaza. One doctor even described how Israeli forces are using lethal quadrupter drones They didn't say what they were targeting or weren't sure, but on Tuesday they said they received over five casualties who had received direct chest and neck wounds. One of them died, one was on the verge of death and the remaining are in critical condition.
3: Lily, you've been hearing lots of voice notes from these doctors. Could you tell us what you're hearing from them?
2: Mm -hmm. So I've mainly been talking to Ghassan Abusita, who's a plastic Reconstructive surgeon, and he was in Shifa Hospital, but then he was working between Al Ali Hospital and Shifa Hospital in northern Gaza. They're like a 10 minute, three kilometer drive away from each other. But he was locked out of Shifa when it became surrounded by Israeli forces. So now he's based in Al Ali Hospital, and I've been speaking with him. Al Ali is the only functioning hospital remaining in the whole of Gaza City. They have over 600 patients, according to the latest numbers, and they only have three surgeons just two operating rooms and no access to blood banks or any other medical urgent supplies. Ghassan, he explained how he was exhausted to the point of pain. They've been working 24-hour shifts, and he told me through voice notes that he doesn't leave the operating room except to go into the corridor to see who most desperately needs surgery. He also said that the Al-Ali Hospital was used during the First World War for British soldiers, and today that the conditions are so dire that they're not too dissimilar from the conditions they were working in. Back then, a particularly moving line he said to me was about how he's coping is, we eat when we can just because you need to keep going and keep moving forward. You go to sleep knowing that the day after will look as bleak as the day before, but we live in hope.
3: And what are the conditions on the ground in terms of the weather? How, how is that changing and how is that impacting on the medical care available?
2: Um, well, doctors and humanitarian workers have warned that southern Gaza in particular, is turning into a public health catastrophe, as this is where they've been advised to flee. Hundreds of thousands of people have gone there because it's supposed to be safe. And also, it's the beginning of the rainfall season, so this is threatening to fuel the spread of waterborne diseases and bacterial infections. Facilities run by the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees in southern Gaza, where over 580,000 displaced people are reportedly sheltering, are more than over nine times overcapacity. Thomas Wright, the director of the UN agency, who's overseeing the aid distribution in Gaza, said today that sewage is flowing in the streets of Rafa, as all three sewage pumps have run out of fuel. And the WHO said last week that there have been more than 33,500 cases of diarrhea reported, which is almost 16 times the monthly average since mid-October, with most of these cases seen in children under the age of five. People haven't showered in weeks. Water pumps have stopped working, so there's no drinking water for these hundreds of thousands of people, and they're just sharing scraps of food between them.
3: Lily you spoke to us last week about the situation in hospitals. We brought you back this week to update us. How would you describe the the change?
2: I'd say the change is that the hospitals just aren't functioning anymore. It's beyond comparison. Like when Gasan compared it to conditions in World War One, it's just inhumane. And I think also because The Israeli forces have closed in on Gaza City and northern Gaza in particular. It's just made conditions unbearable and it's just really drastic.
3: Looking back over the last week of reporting, what's the interview or the image that stays with you that you've seen?
2: I've just been seeing so many videos and pictures of children being completely mutilated, um, like bleeding, covered in dust, being pulled out from rubble underneath buildings. And I've just never even seen anything like that before. So I think it's just seeing the sheer amount of children that have been affected by this is shocking.
3: What happens next to the hospitals and the medical professionals and doctors in Gaza? And especially there, as you said, the the patients and the children.
2: I think the most important thing to focus on is how to evacuate these critical patients. The Palestinian Red Cross Society, who run the ambulance services in Gaza, and they also run the Al-Quds Hospital in northern Gaza, which fell last week, they shared a video on their account on X showing thousands of displaced people from the hospital and dozens of patients making the journey south only two days ago. Some critical patients were even wheeled in hospital beds, which were then lifted over the decimated roads, and they were forced to walk for hours to make the 11-kilometre journey. So I think the next important thing is just figuring out a strategy and a humanitarian corridor of how to get the thousands of people to safety.
3: Thank you very much, Lily. Since we spoke to Lily less than 24 hours ago, she's since told us that the Al-Ali hospital has now also stopped functioning meaning that there are no more hospitals functioning in the whole of Gaza City. We will keep updating you on the state of healthcare across Gaza. Verity Bowman is a foreign reporter for The Telegraph, tasked with the daunting job of running the Israel Live blog. On Thursday, the IDF assaulted the Al Shifa hospital in northern Gaza. Verity was on the blog that day and reported on the battle in real time. I asked her to take us through the fighting.
4: So it began very early on Wednesday morning when Israeli troops entered the Al Shifa hospital and they spent the day deepening their search into it. So at first they killed five Hamas militiamen in gunfire outside and then more than 100 commanders entered the hospital complex. Troops then roamed its wards, rounding up military-age men for questioning according to some reports, but it is important to say that a lot of reports coming out of the hospital were buried. So soon after the raid, Israeli forces shared a video showing automatic weapons, grenades, ammunition, and flak jackets that said were recovered from an undisclosed building within the complex. This is really important because it's sort of speaking to the Israeli claims that Hamas is using the hospital as some form of military base, which has been quite contentious in the last few days. Another thing that Israeli forces said they found were Hamas uniforms that were thrown on the hospital floor so that those um, soldiers could escape in a civilian sort of disguise. So like I said, Israel is hunting for evidence that Hamas is using the hospital as a base. And internationally, they've been facing increasing pressure to prove its claims about this. And as well, it's claims that Hamas are using patients, staff and civilians there as human shields. And again, in a wider context, that's part of Israel's broader accusation that Hamas is repeatedly using Palestinians as human shields. So far, though, some of their claims haven't quite been proved true yet, and one of those is that Hamas built a network of tunnels under the hospital. And Hamas and the hospital have obviously denied these claims, but we're yet to see what's going to develop there. I think something that's really important to remember while all of this is going on is that the hospital is still functioning and looking after a lot of Gazans, many of them who have been most impacted by the war. At the moment, estimates say that there are more than 2,000 civilians sheltering in the complex, while this is going on, doctors have said that water, electricity, medical supplies and oxygen supplies have been cut off completely. And they've even said that there is a stench of decomposing corpses filling the air. We have some evidence of this sort of thing going on because doctors have released images of 36 premature babies who they fear are at risk of dying because the intensive care facilities are no longer working. They have said that three of these babies have already passed away. Another thing to pay attention to is that the IDF is pretty aware of the PR implications of insulting this hospital, and they've really been trying to stress the humanitarian side of its operation. One of the main things to come out of the raid was an IDF photo and footage of troops carrying boxes that were prominently marked with the label medical supplies. Its troops have also offered food, incubators and other equipment to medics, as well as safe passage for anyone to leave but the IDF says these offers have been refused. The entire complication is very complicated, and like I said, accounts coming out of the hospital are buried. Some witnesses claim that Israeli soldiers, many wearing masks, shot into the air and ordered young men to surrender when they first entered this facility. They said that about 1,000 male Palestinians, hands above their heads, were in the courtyard, and that some of them were stripped naked by Israeli soldiers checking for weapons or explosives. However, the BBC cited an unidentified local Palestinian journalist who denied there was any shooting and said that Arabic-speaking IDF soldiers had simply questioned people. The United States, Israel's top ally, also believes that Hamas has a command centre below the Al Shubha complex. President Joe Biden said that Hamas had committed a war crime by housing their headquarters and their military underneath a hospital but he did warn Israel to be incredibly careful of harming civilians during the operation.
3: Thank you very much, Pharisee. Defence editor Daniel Sheridan spent last weekend covering Armistice Day and Remembrance Sunday here in the UK. The days, traditionally when the population reflects on the cost of war and remembers those who have died in the service of the country, were disrupted by rallies and protests from, on the one hand, pro-Palestinian supporters and, on the other, the far right. I wanted to understand what happened and what influence the Israel-Karza conflict is having on British society. Here's Danielle.
1: Every year we remember that the guns of the First World War ceased firing at 11am on November the 11th 1918. The armistice was agreed in the early hours of that very day with the agreement coming into effect at 11am. It's become so significant in British culture because it represents a moment to reflect and really remember our fallen. So anyone that went to school in the UK will remember the rattle of tins from the Royal British Legion poppy cellars as autumn begins, wearing a poppy as a show of pride for our armed forces, and then how classrooms would fall silent on this day at the stroke of 11am. So, from children, the importance of this day is really ingrained in us. I see you nodding along, so I think you know what I mean. Oh no, we had
3: Armistice Day services, assemblies, everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: So, from children, it is really ingrained in us the importance of it. And We even saw in the far right thugs at the weekend, and by the way, for the record, I'm quoting Rishi Sunak there, many of them had poppies on their clothing. So it was disappointing that while they chose to commemorate the event in one sense, they succumbed to violence at a point and um, forced a cloud over it.
3: One of the things I'm interested in, and kind of the reason we're talking, I think, is obviously the war in Israel and Gaza is uh, impacting different societies in different ways around the world. And we saw that, I think, in evidence this last weekend on Armistice Day and then Remembrance Sunday. So how has the war between Israel and Hamas impacted British culture, British society? You were reporting over the entire weekend, so you saw some of this yourself.
1: Well, that cloud I spoke of was mainly caused by what is happening in the Middle East right now. So police confirmed that the march would be away from the cenotaph. So there was a collective sigh of relief among military circles. But far-right thugs, and again, as I said, the PM's words, exploited the tensions on the streets of the capital to essentially spout hatred and racist slurs. I watched one video of four white men who were arrested after hurling abuse at people in Waterloo Station in the evening of armistice day it was disgusting language things i won't repeat here and very unpleasant to see happening they let themselves down as well as the country they claim to love so much in my opinion and then the police subsequently appealed to twitter for help identifying the individuals for hate crimes a number of people were arrested over the weekend including people supporting the pro-palestinian march Again, the police, and this was a joint effort from the British Transport Police and the Metropolitan Police, appealed to Twitter for help in identifying these people. One image from the pro-Palestine cause showed a smiling woman holding a poster of a palm tree with cutouts of the faces of the Prime Minister and Suella Braverman, the former Home Secretary, scattered among coconuts on a beach. Now, the reference to coconuts is used as a slur against non-white people to insinuate that they're betraying their native culture and pandering to white opinion. In Victoria Station, there was also an instance where poppy sellers had to move their stand on Armistice Day because pro-Palestinian protesters began a sit-in at the station where they were volunteering.
3: RBL is the Royal British Legion, of course.
1: Yes, so it was mostly calm. There were chants of, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free – And we know that this is a really divisive chant because for some, it is a call to end the Israeli occupation of the West Bank. But to others, including many Jewish groups, it is an anti-Semitic slogan. And in this footage, you see the poppy sellers losing ground to those supporters performing a sit-in. And eventually they just pick up the stand and they move it. And I spoke to the RBL and they said, you know... It wasn't an issue, really. There was no violence. The poppy sellers moved on. They continued selling. But earlier in the week, poppy sellers at Charing Cross Station were also surrounded by pro-Palestine protesters. And it just had echoes of that. At the time, the Veterans Minister, Johnny Mercer, said that, you know, London's a big city. There are plenty of areas to protest without trying to intimidate those that are just rattling a tin, which he made the point of saying is a non-political symbol. So, yeah, I think that the war that is raging between Israel and Hamas is really playing out over here in terms of the tensions that we're seeing between different groups on, on the streets. And unfortunately, it just it really seemed to have come to a head on Armistice Day.
3: We've talked a bit about how society is reacting. How have British politicians across, you know, from Labour, from the Tories, ap- approached to the subject? What's been happening there?
1: So, obviously, the big news is that Suella Braveman got sacked as Home Secretary. This was after she printed an article in the Times which ignored certain corrections from Number Ten, and she branded the protests ahead of Remembrance Weekend as hate marches.
3: The, the, the pro-Palestinian protesters. Yes.
1: And ultimately, that's cost her her job. And then... You know, there was upset among the, the shadow front benches. Sir Keir had warned his MPs that they shouldn't, under any circumstances, attend the events.
3: Sir Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party.
1: Yes, and it resulted in Imran Hussain saying he was deeply troubled by Starmer's stance when he refused to call to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. So there's been a lot of political unrest among both the front and back benches, shadow and Tory government.
3: I mean, do you think there'll be any result from this? What will be the follow up? Any change in approach on the conflict from the British government or from Sir Keir Starmer and the Labour Party?
1: I think that's a million dollar question. It's really hard to know how things will change. Bringing in the former Prime Minister David Cameron as the Foreign Secretary is incredibly interesting. I was going back over his stance on Russia, Ukraine, his relationship with Putin over the years, his relationship with Israel, what he said about the situation in Gaza um, in his time as prime minister. And I mean, of course, he's a diplomat. He's a politician. He has always tried to be a kind of firm but fair individual on really contentious issues. He always presented himself as a friend of Israel, he met Netanyahu, he went to Israel. When he was PM, he learned phrases in Hebrew, he revealed that he had a grandfather that was Jewish. He presented himself as a supporter, but at the same time wasn't afraid to speak out when he saw injustices in Gaza. and. I think his wording in 2016, maybe it was, uh, or 2015, he referred to Gaza as being an open prison camp. So in terms of what will be happening going forward, if, if we will change the rhetoric now that Rishi Sunak has changed his cabinet it will be really interesting to see what happens. I don't think anyone knows. All we can do is look back at how David Cameron presented himself on the diplomatic and international stage as a way of thinking what he might do in the months ahead. But no one knows for sure how things will evolve. I think only time will tell.
3: Daniel, you're... Back from Jerusalem now after your reporting trip, before we talk about your reflections on that, um, did you get any sense from Israelis you met about their views and their thoughts on the divisions, uh, sort of social divisions in European society caused by the, uh, or certainly influenced by, the conflict between Israel and Hamas?
1: So the people that I spoke to on the ground on Israel, I think it needs to be caveated with the fact that emotions were incredibly high and there wasn't a lot of tolerance for the the pro-Palestinian stance. I was meeting people, you know, outside vigils for hostages who were trapped in Gaza. I was speaking to young people at funerals of those who had been killed during the October 7th attacks and um, they were speaking from a real place of anguish, hurt and frustration and they felt angry On the whole, I would say that there was so much support for Palestine and that there was a lot of accommodating behaviors from governments to allow these protests to happen. But I would also, as I say, I'm framing that within the sense that these are people that are on the ground of a country that has been invaded and brutally attacked. So, They are going to have this kind of raw response, you know, and I I remember a conversation I had with one woman who had actually moved to Israel 18 months prior from North London, and she was just quite angry that we were allowing these protests to go ahead in London and and saying, you know, it's disrespectful to to us and what happened to to our country. It's just brushing over the attacks and going back into the narrative of what's happening in Gaza. And by doing that, it forgets the atrocities that took place or it, it overrides the whole issue that has prompted these protests to begin. And the focus is no longer on Hamas went into a country and slaughtered 1400 people and has moved the focus onto the subject of Gaza and that is really painful for those Israelis living this experience every day.
3: And final thoughts from you Danny really on your reporting trip. You've been back in London for just over a week and um, when you look back on your time in Israel and Jerusalem what do you make of it?
1: Well, I would say I returned to the UK more confused about the situation in the Middle East than I went out there. You know, it was very clear-cut to me. Hamas invaded a country, killed innocent civilians. A retaliation is required. But at what point does the retaliation stop? And it's very hard to constantly see... Gaza being bombarded and innocent civilians being killed and, you know, the bodies of young children dug up from the rubble and not lean towards wanting some sort of ceasefire. Justin Welby called for a ceasefire the other day. I overheard someone saying that was incredibly naive and they expected more from someone in that position to call for that. And perhaps it is... And perhaps the reality of war is that innocent civilians get caught in the crossfire, but that doesn't mean it makes it any easier to digest. And I do feel for Gazans, I feel for Israelis, and I'm glad I'm not a politician or a world leader trying to make sense of this and deciding what to do next. I think the difficulties is that Hamas are using civilians as human shields and they are manipulating the fight, which is desperately unfair. We know that Israel is is appealing to civilians to leave, but if civilians have no choice to flee, then what are they supposed to do? So, as I said, I, I left it more confused than I was when I entered. And you can probably tell from my argument that, well, I'm not. It's not an argument. I'm presenting the two ways I see it, which is, a, it is a desperately sad situation. And one that has been going on really for years, because as people say, this this doesn't just begin on October the 7th. This goes back for for decades. And um, I don't really know how this war is going to play out. But I do know that no one wants to appear weak. And so if Netanyahu gives into a ceasefire, or stops pummeling Gaza, he will be considered weak. And that is the one thing that leaders do not want to be associated with.
3: Daniel Sheridan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground in Israel and Gaza, subscribe to The Telegraph. Or sign up to Dispatches, which brings stories from our award winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from contributors to this podcast. If you appreciated the podcast, please consider following Battle Lines on your preferred podcast app. And, If you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. Battle Lines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine, you can listen to Battle Lines' sister podcast, Ukraine The Latest. This episode of Battle Lines was produced by me, David Knowles, and executive producer, Louisa Wells.